Oh, thank you very much. Whoa. Can you give me a little, little more James Earl Jones in it? <laughs> yeah, I'll take that speech. <laughs> well, in the meantime, uh, I am feel pretty privileged and honored to be here. Thank you guys for coming out and uh, spending a nice cloudy Saturday. Good to be listening to some jazz on a Saturday. Uh, Mr. Roger Spencer on bass. <laughs> Chris Walters on piano. And the Honorable Neoshi Jackson. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because like I was I was sitting over there and I was like, oh crap, I gotta get up and talk. I was just listening. <laughs> I was like, yeah, swing it. Oh, I gotta do something. <laughs> Drummers with microphones, watch out. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. We apologize now. <laughs> I'm great, yeah, man. Yeah. I'm, you doing good? I'm doing wonderful. I woke up again. You know? uh, amen. Amen. <laughs> well, for those who don't know, this is an, an interview-based forum where we get to hear great jazz and hear stories, the behind-the-scenes stuff that happens that you don't really get a chance to hear any other way except from the artist's mouth. So... We get to learn all about your life in an hour and a half. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's enough. That's all yeah, it takes. Is that good? Is that that's good? all it takes, yeah. Um, you know, let me, let me first off start off by saying that you've been a wonderful friend, role model, mentor. And um, not only is this guy a tremendous musician, drummer, artist, but he's a beautiful person and spirit. So I am very honored mm, to be you, here. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, most definitely. So let's go back to the beginning. I mean, like, okay. you know, I'm, you're a kid of what age and you decide, I want to do this. Like, like, take us back. Uh, well, the earliest memories are around 11. Okay. Um, my mother claims, well, not claim, but she told me a story of being about five and being given a toy drum for Christmas and standing on the front porch playing and people coming around. I have no memory of that whatsoever. Never thought about drums again until I think around age 11, something like that. Um, by 12, it was like a burning thing. It was like, I have to play the drums. Yeah. Uh, so I was in a, sort of a neighborhood group. There were talent shows at all the local recreation centers. And so I was in this group, and um, it was kind of a singing thing. We had guys play guitar, and we'd sing all the doo-wop stuff. And they would, you know, we'd I'd practice, and, you know, then we'd get to the event, and they'd say, just move your lips, don't sing. You know? <laughs> um, but I'm getting drums one day, so I'm in the group. I'm cool. Right, 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 right. There in the meantime... Played on every cardboard box there was, uh, oatmeal boxes. The very, the very first lessons was a family friend who played jazz by choice. He could play the other stuff, just didn't care to. He made the mistake of saying I could come over whenever I wanted for lessons. So every morning at 9 o'clock, I was ringing his bell. Uh, <laughs> and those first lessons he taught me by, uh, he would, we would play along with albums by people like Miles Davis, Cannonball Adley, Max Roach. And he would teach me what to do and you know how to what to listen for and how to count fours. Uh, he told me like when the people when they start soloing, learn, make sure you learn the melody and keep singing the melody over and over in your head so you don't get lost where the solos are. You know, mm. which was one of the most valuable pieces of information ever. Um, taught me you know when you, when you play ride cymbal, it's got to swing even without a hi hat. So it's the two and four. 
so at like 12 years old, this was pretty valuable information. Sure. Fortunately, I grew up in Baltimore. Uh, there was a pretty thriving jazz scene back in the day. Um, so probably from the age of 13, maybe 14, first club gig was at 13, but uh, right by the age of 14, I was showing up at the jam sessions. There were two, sometimes three and four a week at different clubs. Oh, wow. And I was a little bit of a novelty, so they'd let me come in and, you know, and I'd actually get to play with the guys. and really good players who were very helpful and would just, you know, sort of point you in the right direction, pull your coat, as they said back in the day, you know. Yes, um, yes. And, uh, yeah, so I would, you know, get, you know, I would play and guys said, man, you might want to ease up on that ride symbol, go listen to Tony and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, you know, that was it. By the time I was 15, I was in a couple of jazz groups where we actually rehearsed and had arrangements and stuff. Most of the playing was balanced between the soul music of the day, mm -hmm. uh, the James Brown, the Motown, the Sam Cooke. And I think a major influence on me was that we had a theater called the Royal Theater, part of that Apollo circuit. And so I saw every one of those artists come through. Every other week there was a live stage show. Right. So I saw everybody, Sam Cooke, um, Curtis Mayfield Impressions, all the Motown stuff. And, wow. and very often they brought drummers. So I'd get to sit, like my favorite memory of that time was Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions. He had this drummer named Leo Morris that just blew me away. He <laughs> later became known as... Uh, Idris Muhammad. Exactly, yeah. Idris Muhammad. Yeah. And he, uh, man, one of the majors. He's known for his jazz playing, but he played the, the funk stuff like I'd never heard it played before. You know, he's yeah. from New Orleans and had that whole second line thing going. Oh you know? yeah, for sure, for sure. What were some of those records that you were listening to, like as you're honing your craft and you're figuring out, okay, this is what I want to do? Like, what were some of the pivotal recordings that you would listen to in reference oh, in developing um, your sound? Well, yeah, well, I mean, I was probably trying to be a Max Roach clone in the beginning. I mean, I just, okay. something about Max Roach just did it for me. Uh, so yeah. I just really listened a lot to him more than anybody else. Art Blakey as far as learning how to shuffle and, you know, yeah, oh, yeah. really swing hard. Um, those, you know, let's see, there was a, there was this crazy album called Rich versus Roach. It was Buddy Rich versus Max Roach, you know. Yeah. And I listened to that mm -hmm. a whole bunch, you know, listened to that a lot and tried to, you know, I loved the way it was all big band stuff. And it was interesting because Buddy Richard played these amazing technical things and then Max Roach would play half the notes and twice the swing, you know, <laughs> so it was right, like, right. Yeah, th those were major influences. Very cool. So, all right, so we're a teenager getting ready to graduate from high school. Mm -hmm. Was there a collegiate experience or did you just go straight into the road or like? Oh, no, I, I'd heard too many road stories by then. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I heard, you know, I'd, I'd talk to meet all the guys. Again, because of those stage shows coming through town, that was mostly just the soul music. There was this one restaurant where everybody went at night and it was directly across the street from that theater so all the people that were playing at the theater would be hanging out there at night and i'd go down and hang out and kind of eavesdrop on all the road stories and stuff oh yeah and um and it was interesting uh, the early gigs the first straight out of high school i ended up uh, in a cover band and we just toured all over the place uh, that ended with um, me doing touring with Max uh, with Jack McDuff the organist oh, wow. brother Jack McDuff mm -hmm. um, and then there was a band that never got known in Boston where the organ organist was a guy from Baltimore named Webster Lewis 
who did a, a lot of like behind the scenes kind of work. He actually scored it or a lot of uh, Coca-Cola commercials and stuff oh, like okay. that, like wrote string charts for that kind of stuff. But he had this band and they, after going through about a hundred arrangements, they got tired of playing their arrangements. So the first one on stage played, you know, like musicians get on stage, somebody always doodles around and does something. Well, that became the first tune. Oh. Oh yeah, so you could never repeat a set. Oh. And these guys, it was a little, it was very intimidating because these guys, if they were, if they didn't have a gig that week, they would go and and uh, do substitute teaching at New England Conservatory in Berkeley and places like that. And I'm like, you know, these guys were like, to my mind, they were way over my head. But but they t they gave me a very valuable piece of information once. I was saying to the guy, just like, you know, I don't think I'm fitting in the band, and I, I, maybe you guys better get somebody that's a little stronger. And I'm waiting for my, my I'm having a pity party. I'm waiting for my sympathy. So one of the guys goes, oh, he don't like the way we play. He's going to take his ball and go home. And I thought, oh. <laughs> so that, that yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that set of precedent is like, don't whine, practice. <laughs> right. Oh, most definitely. Let's talk about one of the, your first, Big gig. Um, <laughs> where were you living? Who was it with? Where were you living? And what what were the circumstances around it that trans well, depends on how you define big. Like I say, the Jack McDuff thing for me at the time was major because uh, he was really known. Uh, he was in his heyday, kind of. That's where George Benson came from, from being in that band. And it was a totally different band by the time I got in, but. I was living in Baltimore still okay, at the time. Okay. I'd actually ran into him in Boston. I was doing like a month-long gig in a club in Boston. There was a guitarist I grew up with, a guy named O'Donnell Levy, and we were both on that gig. And there was a place in Boston used to be called the Jazz Workshop, and somehow they would convince the, the, the artist that was appearing that week to host a jam section on Sundays. Can you, you know how strange that would be now to have to let local guys come and sit in, you know? But they did, and we both went and sat in, and the guitarist left the next week. I got a call about three weeks later to come out and do the gig. Oh, nice. And, uh, you know, and the very first night on the gig, man, I'll never forget, you know, I'm trying my hardest, playing my heart out, and, and uh, McDuff comes over, he says, you know, I've heard you play, I know you can play this stuff, but I know you've been doing that rock gig, so I gotta tell you now, you can't play that cymbal that way in my band. Cause I was like banging them, you know. Yeah, what is that way? Show, show <laughs> us what that way is. Well, I was like. <laughs> so it was like, so I spent the first month in that band just learning to drive the band with nothing but cymbal and hi hat. Because he was doing foot pedals too on organ. Oh yeah, well, he was, he was, or they all bass. cheated left hand bass, but right, right, they right. used the, the accented with the foot pedals. But anyway, yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, then that started getting pretty comfortable, and through him, I started meeting all kinds of people. Uh, like you know, uh, he was real good friends with Stanley Tarantino, so you know they would come around and Houston Person, like, oh. you know, all those guys, and um, it was just a good seasoning. Now the next big by. Uh, mainstream standards was Frank Zappa. Okay. That came about through a friend who was from Baltimore also who had somehow become tour manager and Frank had a drummer. He wanted two drummers in the band because he felt like the band had gotten too sterile. Mm -hmm. 
So what he said to my friend was, I need a drummer that can play with a street feel, is how he put it. So I got an audition, and uh, he liked my plan, and just started right into rehearsals. I had to fly out to L.A. And um, my wife is reminding me, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of a side story to that. <laughs> by then I Thank had, you, Ross. By then I had moved back to Baltimore. I completed two years at a community college, which fortunately the faculty from Peabody Conservatory, the snooty school in Baltimore, had taken over the music department. At, at this little community college. So I got like a, a conservatory level education for a couple hundred bucks a semester, right? And I was about to transfer to uni, uh, University of Maryland. Uh -huh. And uh, all through school, I was working four or five nights a week, you know, just because I was on my own and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was trying to work, save some money before transferring down to University of Maryland because I didn't want to have to be hustling so hard to, to make ends meet. And so I decided to drive a school bus. I took the test and it was great. I mean, I love driving, I love driving, so I love driving this big old bus and stuff. And, um, and they would take me out on these drives, you know, and okay, they would point the way to go. I was having a ball, right? Go down, get my license, they go out. So I go out one day, it's a Friday, and they said, and the guy takes me to a part of town I've never been in before. And it's one of those parts of town that's not a grid, it's not all square blocks, you know what I mean? And he goes, turn here, turn here, turn there, turn there. And it's like, and then at the end he says, this is your route, you can pick these kids up for school on Monday morning. I have no idea where I am. Oh no. I didn't really pay attention because, you know, I'm, somebody's telling you when to turn, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that Friday. That Friday night is when I got the call that if I wanted this audition with Zappa, I had to leave that Sunday. Well, I don't know how those kids got to school that Monday. <laughs> but That's awesome. I very soon after moved to LA and, and played with Frank Zappa, and people thought he was this weird sort of hippie drug kind of guy, and he was the straightest, most disciplined musician I've ever met in my life. It was the best school I ever went to. Hmm. Um, we did, I mean, the odd time thing, like Roger played a funny old thing just a moment ago, we should do that, that Cherokee that way. No. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Well, anyway, I mean, all right, just a, a quick, quick elementary briefer on our times. We all know four, one, two, three, four, and sometimes we know a waltz, one, two, three, one. Well, we did a lot of fives, a lot of sevens, and it's kind of simple. Instead of playing, well, the Smothers Brothers had this great song where it was like, brought a woman with a peg leg doing a waltz. <laughs> and instead of being like, it was like, that would be five. One, two, three, one, two, one, two. So it's just math, basically. A seven would be like a two, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one. That kind of stuff. And so you did a lot of that, but it, that's like, really making it extra simple because even within a bar he would have like across one beat you'd have to play quintuplets or septuplets and stuff ensemble it's like oh so gosh. if you had a bar five one two one two three you would have to go one two one. <laughs> i mean crazy wow. stuff and the whole band would be doing it so you couldn't slough on it so you guys are you guys are reading charts oh yeah yeah he wrote everything crash symbols toms the whole deal Oh, yeah, I thought I could read when I got there. I learned how to read in that band. <laughs> you know? uh, but anyway, that, that was the biggie. That was the first one. And because of some of the recordings I did with him, 
And we did a couple of things where he brought in like some of the studio players. We did one thing that was a full orchestra. And I got this great reputation for like being this killer reader. They didn't know I'd been practicing that stuff for months, but you know. <laughs> uh, but but it got me an awful lot of work, and I started meeting like some of the heavier players out there. No, you were you were traveling with him as well yeah, as studio stuff. Yes, doing it, working a lot. Um, it only ended when he decided to cancel the tour. I still didn't know quite enough people out there to feel comfortable, like I could just really get enough work, so that was gonna be like a month and a half of work that wasn't gonna happen. A dear friend named Alfonso Johnson happened to be the bass player with Weather Report. Mm -hmm. And we went way back, you know, he was a teenager when we started playing together. I think I was 20 or something. So uh, he kept saying to me, man, the guys are in town, why don't you come down and jam with Weather Report? And it's like, well, yeah, I'd love to jam, but man, I hate auditions, I really don't wanna audition. He says, no, it's not an audition, just come down and jam. I said, well, okay, if you say so. so I show up, and of course there's another drummer there, you know, and this guy could really play, oh my goodness, this guy could play, and so, okay, I set my stuff up, you know, had two kids on stage, so he would play, then I would play, and he would play, and I would play, and the guy, I mean, he's passed away now, this guy was unbelievable, a guy named Woody Theus, he went by the name oh, Sonship, yeah, yeah. Yeah. oh yeah, he oh, was yeah. unbelievable, but the craziest thing happened, they played one of their Weather Report kind of ballads, this really ethereal thing, um, not something with pocket, you know. Uh -huh. And he totally froze and had no idea what to play. Wow. Which shocked me, that stunned me, and that was very comfortable for me, because I, I, you know, I played so many different kinds of stuff by then. And ended up leaving the next, starting rehearsals the next week, and and, oh, and there was no looking back after that. I mean, I let, awesome. I let Zappa know I was, wasn't gonna be back, but and because it was weather report, he didn't have a problem with it. He, oh, he, I'm he sure, did, yeah, you know. like, okay. <laughs> Just um, and from there, I did a lot of freelancing around LA. I did a Broadway show called The Wiz, which was really, really fun. I'd never done a Broadway show before I wanted to. And, you know, after about a few weeks in, you start wondering, okay, I've done this, this is nice, but I'm not sure about this sitting in a pit thing, because you're under the stage and all that. And I was so used to being on stage, it was fun. And I happened to meet this lady doing The Wiz, and she was like, you know, one of the stars, you know, um, oh. and I fooled her. She she married me. Yeah. I'm telling you, <laughs> you done did good. Uh, yes, my wife Roz. Oh, Roz, take stand up, wave, do something. <laughs> there you go. There she is. But during that period, um, about two weeks before before the end of that run in San Francisco is where we met, and then it was going to move on to Chicago. And I got a call from this little English guy. I heard this little English voice on the phone. Hey, this is Phil Collins. You want a gig with Genesis? I mean, he had heard some of the recordings I made by then and just, it's like there's no audition required. Just show up, you know? So. Yeah, that doesn't happen every day. No, no, no. I've, I've well, had a pretty amazing well, run, actually. Well, we'll, 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 we'll come back to that. Let's talk a little more about Weather Report now. Did oh, you, did you, yeah. I mean, so much happened mm -hmm. there. Um, you were a part of some recordings with them? Yeah, I did the black market thing. And then later, there were two things that happened during that year. Uh, one was a video was made of one of the concerts in, in Berlin was recorded. It, only, it actually came out maybe four or five years ago. Hmm. It was only, you know, it was a live live recording video of it. And um, then they came, they put something out called Live and Unreleased, which is all the weather report bands from 75 to 83. Oh, neat. oh man, it's if you're a weather yeah. report fan, it's a must-have. Um, 
because you'll hear those songs but played like you've never ever heard them before, you know. And so we, I guess, we sort of opened and closed that album. We, it's it was it, it was a great time. I got to meet and that many more people and hang out in circles that you know, which were amazing. You know. Can you play us a song from that era, from from when you were with Weather Report? Yeah, we can, can do that. Can, uh, can. We can just happen to know one. <laughs> All right. Chester Thompson yeah. Trio. Yeah, we're going to play one, a Wayne Shorter composition uh, called Elegant People.
Thank you.